Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. Take your Bible and look with me to the gospel record of Mark in chapter number 9. The gospel record of Mark in chapter number 9. As we go through the gospel record of Mark, this is a concise book that puts an emphasis on Jesus' actions while he was here on his earthly ministry. And now as we've been in the last couple messages, watching as Jesus has been working primarily with his disciples, and he's been teaching them one thing. He's been teaching them that he is going to Jerusalem. While he's at Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, placed in a false trial. He is going to be put on the cross and die, and that he's going to rise the third day. And he's been explaining this to his disciples at the same time as he's also been teaching them that with God, all things are possible. And he's been giving them miracles, and he's been trying to teach them to depend on God, and that God has his supply. But yet, as we've been watching, the disciples haven't quite caught it. And we're going to see that over and over over and over, that he's been teaching, he's been working with them, and they still don't catch it. But now there's going to be a very special experience for some of Jesus' disciples as we turn to the gospel record of Mark in chapter number 9. The gospel record of Mark, chapter number 9, and notice with me if you don't mind in verse number 1. The gospel record of Mark, chapter number 9, in verse number 1, and he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter, and James, and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain, apart by themselves, and he was transfigured, before them. And his raiment became shining, exceedingly white as snow, as so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias at, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, and one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were so, were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they have seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead sh should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must come first? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how it is written that the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things, and be sought it not. But I say unto you, that Elias is indeed come, that they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. And if you have it of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the gospel record of Mark in chapter number nine? The gospel record of Mark chapter number nine, and notice with me in verse number two. At the very end of verse number two, notice the phrase, he was transfigured. He was transfigured. And with the Lord's help, we're going to preach a message with a common title, what this passage is normally referenced as, the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration. 
This is a specific event that is referenced in the Bible several times. This important event, the Mount of Transfiguration. If you wouldn't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And thank you for allowing us to assemble together around your word. And we're asking that you would open up your Bible in a special way. That you would let us learn about this wonderful experience. And then what we're supposed to learn because of this. I'm asking that it would be clear. That it would be easily understood. That you would be with my thoughts. That you would order them in such a way that would be pleasing and useful to you. Again, I do dare not trust my own. So once again, I ask that you fill me with your precious spirit. That you would get your own work accomplished through your precious word. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Mount of Transfiguration. One of the high marks found within the Word of God. And if you don't mind, let's walk through here and let's see a couple things that we want to uh, put our attention on. The very first thing I'd like to show you is the pledge. The pledge. Notice with me in verse number one. Here he gives a, dis, uh, uh, a promise concerning some of his disciples. Verse number one. And he said unto them, so Jesus said to his disciples, verily or truly I say it unto you that there should be some of them that stand here which shall not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now here is a pledge that he told to the disciples. He said some of the disciples here, some of you will not see death until you have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now when we come here we could see some of these terms. A term that you'll find a lot in the gospel records is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven carries the idea of what God is doing here on this earth. So what God is doing here on this earth includes what's happening here. What's happening today that we are still working within the kingdom of heaven. That God is trying to do something here on this earth. He has a plan and he's moving and he's working. The kingdom of God carries the idea what God is trying to get accomplished with his power. And it's carrying about some of the events. This is something special. And here he's giving a clue, a pledge. Now this is happening before the Mount of Transfiguration sometime. Could have been weeks, days, years. It could have been any time further. But he's telling them as a promise that some of you are not going to see death until you see God and his power. What a great opportunity that some of them will have. And some people believe that as this is uh, chapter 9 is leading into this event, that it's a, a prophecy giving a pledge, a promise given to these disciples concerning what's going to happen later on in this chapter. So we start off with this pledge that he told them that some of you are going to experience something that's going to be amazing. Let's see what it is. The second thing I'd like to show you is the place. The place. Notice with me in verse number two. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John. Now notice he didn't take all of his disciples. Now when Jesus worked, there was almost uh, different rings that he would work with. That Jesus always was organized. And so you would have on the outskirts, you would have the unreached. Then you would have those that are considered disciples or followers after Christ. Then you would have the twelve. Then from there it would be further broken down to the three. And then from the three he had the one, Peter. And so Jesus worked with all of these groups. But what he is trying to do is trying to bring people from where they are and bring them to the next step. Now we apply that to uh, what we do here is that we have the unreached. Our goal is to reach them and to bring them within our churches. Now, within the church framework, we have people who are visitors, but they're not members. That's fine. We're trying to bring them in. Then you have people who are members, but they're not workers. And so we try to bring them into the next level. Then you have those that you want to teach, uh, that you especially want to train, that you try to work with. And then you have the one that you invest in, that, that one that you're trying to help 
uh, move and to move things on. And so Jesus worked and he had different messages in working with all of them. He didn't work with all the 12 the same. You say, well, that's not fair. Life's not fair. That's not what he's trying to do. He's trying to get those that are teachable. When we work as teachers, one of the things that they try to get you to do is work with those who want it. Because otherwise you could spend a lot of time trying to get those that don't want it just to pay attention when you could be investing in those that want it. And so those that are hungry for it, you bring them on. But what you're supposed to do is take everyone from where they're at and bring them to the next level. Bring them in. Bring them closer. Help them take the next step. That's what we're trying to do is help them take the next step. Help them to move forward. And you'll watch this as Jesus works with the disciples all throughout the gospel record that you would have the masses, then you would have the disciples, then you would have the 12, then you would have the three, and then he had the one, Peter, who was trained to be the leader of the group when Jesus left. That you should always be training your replacement. You should always be preparing those to take over, to move forward. And so we see this principle. And so here he's not taking all of the disciples. He's taking the three. Peter, James, and John. The inner circle. And there was many times that Peter, James, and John got to do something special with Jesus that the other disciples did not do. And this was by design because he is training them. He's moving them forward. There was something about them that he's investing them in. And that these three are going to be witnesses of this event. And so after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up to a high mountain apart by themselves. Now, many people believe this is Mount Hermon, which is the tallest mountain within that promised land area. And it is so tall that even in the summer, it is still snow capped. And so even today, as we're in the summer, it's warmer over there. You could still look at Mount Hermon and it's so tall in that area that no matter where you are in that stretch of Israel, you could see Mount Hermon. And so many people believe this is where Jesus took his disciples. And that he brought them to this mountain. Brought them to this cool area. Figuratively and literally brought them to this area. To spend some time with them. And he's bringing them to a place. Because he's going to do something. Which brings me to a third thing. The plan. The plan. What is the plan? What is going to happen here? Notice at the end of verse number 2. What happens when he takes them to a high mountain apart by themselves? And he, that's Jesus, was transfigured before them. The word transfigured is a very interesting word. It carries the idea to put, to turn inside out. The word transfigured is the idea of to turn inside out. Now, why is this a big deal? Because we have to understand who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God robed in flesh. So when Jesus became a man, he did not set aside his deity. He never stopped being God. He still had all the attributes of God. Omnipresent, omnipotent, all-powerful, everywhere at once. He still had all of those. He was still eternal. The only difference is that he robed himself in flesh. Just like I would put on a coat and it would cover the clothes that I'm wearing. Jesus took a robe of flesh and he put it over his deity. He never stopped being God. But at the Mount of Transfiguration, you know what he did? He said, I need to take off that coat. And he took off his humanity just for a moment. And the inside was shown on the outside. And at that moment, they got a glimpse that Jesus Christ was God as he was turned inside out. He unrobed just for a moment at that time. What a sight that would have been. Peter, James, and John watching Jesus. And all of a sudden he says, boys, I'm going to get into something more comfortable. And just in a moment, he transfigures. He turns inside out. And they can see the glory of God at that moment, in that protected moment. Notice as the Bible tries to describe. Now, pause here. Remember the gospel record of Mark was written by John Mark. And 
it was inspired or influenced by Peter. That it is an eyewitness of Peter's account as John Mark is writing it down. So in verse number three, here is Peter's attempt with his own eyes to try to explain what he saw. Notice with me in verse three. And his, that's Jesus, raiment became shining and exceedingly white as snow. Now here it's trying to show the purity. And he's trying to say he glowed. It was so white. How white? It is so white that no fuller, that word fuller is an idea of a launderer. Nice to know that they had launderers back then. That no launderer on earth can white them. Now laundry is always laundry. You have to get it done. It just was a lot harder back then. A lot of times that you would have to use some water. You'd pour water on it and try to get it clean. If it didn't get clean, you know how they used to get stains out? They used to beat the stains out of it. So they would take, let's say that you spilt something on your favorite tablecloth. You would put it over a rock. You'd put some water on it. You would take another rock and you would beat the stain out of it. That sounds like a lot of work. Aren't you glad for washers and dryers now? Then if you had something that you wanted to be white, they didn't have bleach and chemicals of that nature. They had a different type of chemical that they would use. And from what I understand, they would do, it would do the equivalent of bleaching. However, you couldn't be around it for three days afterwards because it smelt so much in this thing of trying to dye it white again. And so here it's given in a, a description that most people would know during that time that you, you could go pay a launderer to go ahead and beat your laundry, to beat out that stain. By the way, keep that in mind when you read your Bible, that when it talks about how he blots out our stains, that's what he's talking about. He's beating that stain out of us. That stain that just won't go away. That's for a different Bible study some other time, but that would just help you. But you could take it and send it to a launderer who could beat that stain out. And then she could put a chemical on it and try to make it as white as you possibly can with cleaning the chemicals. And it wouldn't even match what it was when you saw Jesus in that pure white. It was an undescribably pure white that they saw as his glory shines forth. And that no one on earth could match that type of white. That Jesus had as he was transfigured. As they saw his glory. As he was turned from the inside out. What a sight that would have been. But it didn't stop there. Something else amazing. It would be one thing just to see this. To see Jesus take and turn inside out. To turn white as snow. To see a glimpse of his deity. In the midst of his humanity. But then verse number four, and there appeared unto him Elias, we would say Elijah, with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. So Jesus says, hey boys, I'm going to get more comfortable. And so he chants figures out. And as the disciples are trying to adjust their eyes, they go, wait, there's someone else there. Then they see Old Testament literal Elijah, the one who rained down fire, the one who parted the Jordan Sea, the one who did those major miracles, the one that we spoke about earlier this year in the Bible, that Elijah, real historical Elijah, next to real historical Moses. That was literally Moses, the Moses of the Old Testament, the one that received the Ten Commandments, the one that led two and a half million Hebrew people through the wilderness for 40 years. Our next series, by the way. They saw both of these men talking with Jesus. They're out in the highest peak of the region. They're closer to heaven now than they've ever been literally on the mountain. Jesus gets more comfortable. And Elijah and Moses come down from heaven, join them on the mountaintop. And they begin to talk with Jesus like they're old friends. And by the way, they were. They had a personal relationship with Jesus in the Old Testament. And they knew who they were. And so they began to talk. Now, the gospel record of Mark doesn't give us the details of what their conversation is about. The gospel record of Luke fills us in. You know what they're talking about? They're talking about Jesus. We know that, guess what's going to happen? We already know that you're going to go to Jerusalem. And you're going to be arrested. You're going to be put on a false trial. That you're going to be put to death. But on the third day, you're going to rise again. That's what they're talking about. 
Isn't that what Jesus has been telling the disciples over and over? But now the disciples are not part of this conversation. Moses is talking to this, to Jesus about this. Elijah is talking to Jesus about this. Moses and Elijah are talking together. And by the way, Moses wrote about Jesus and that he was the prophet sure to come and spoke about what Jesus would do. And so Moses knew all the way back in his day what Jesus was to do. And he knew who Jesus was. And they had this conversation. And the disciples are just there watching Jesus in his glory to watch these two great historical figures talking with Jesus. And they're listening to the conversation that Jesus is going to die and rise again. And this was the plan of God. What would you do if you were there? What would you say? I mean, who who would feel qualified to say, can I get in this conversation? I mean, what what do you say to these people? What do you say when Jesus is transfigured out? Just a couple minutes ago, you saw him in flesh and blood. But now he's showing his glory. What do you say? Well, Peter's knows that he has to say something. He's got foot and mouth disease. He just has to say something. The best thing would have said nothing, just to soak it in. But Peter can't allow a silence to go by, so he has to say something. What does he say? Verse number five. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. One for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. Oh, this is great, Jesus. Let's build three churches right here on Mount Hermon. And we'll have one Jesus church. One for the law, which represented by Moses. And one for the prophets. Here's Elijah. And let's have one. Let's... Have a good time. A place where we can meet to talk about Jesus. A place where we can meet to talk about the law. And a place we can meet to talk about what the prophet said. Oh, let's have this fellowship. And again, he doesn't know what he's saying. He's just trying to say something. It didn't make sense. It didn't fit for the thing. It wasn't correct. It wasn't theological correct. And so, as before Jesus could say anything, before Moses can correct him, before Elijah could try to fix it, God says, I've got this. Notice with me in verse number seven. (laughs) And there was a cloud that overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. So God's the one who corrected Peter. (laughs) Don't worry about all of that, Peter. You have one thing, just obey my son. This is my son, obey him. Forget that foolishness. He didn't even correct him. He just said, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't worry about that other stuff. Just keep your eyes on him. Aren't you glad that God was so gracious in correcting him and not telling him where he was theologically wrong and how it didn't work and all of his eschatology and soteriology and all those other fancy words. He just said, this is Jesus. Listen to him. By the way, what was Peter's response when he's looking at Peter or at, at Jesus turned inside out. As he's watching Moses, notice the word in in verse number six, for he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. That word afraid is only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's found in the book of Hebrews, and it's referencing back to where Moses was with the children of Israel, and the children of Israel had heard God's voice And they were afraid if they heard God's voice anymore that they were going to die. And it was a fearful trembling in the presence of God. And just, it's a powerful type of fear. Um, A powerful type of afraid that he had. And it's only used one other time. And again, it's because he's in the presence of God. And it was a type of afraid, of fear that only comes with the presence of God. It's almost like there are different types of love. I love my wife differently than I love God. That's a different type of love relationship. Well, there should be different types of fear. There should be a special type of fear that comes for God. And when you see God high, holy, and lifted up, there should be that fear there. It's different than any other type of fear. It's a fear in the presence 
of a holy God. And again, Peter didn't know what to do with that. So he just said something stupid. And said, I got it taken care of. Peter, this is my son. Listen to him. Ignore all of that other stuff. What an amazing, amazing account. To be there, to be an eyewitness of all of this. Now, if I could mess with your theological minds. Jesus had been robed in flesh for 30 something years now. He had humbled himself. Jesus' humiliation did not begin at the cross. It began the time that he robed himself in flesh and was born in a manger. That's when his humiliation began. He was almighty God and he lowered himself in the part of a human. He's been around all these stinking, rotten, filthy, smelly, sinful humans who violate his name, who sin against God, who use his name in vain. He could have said, you know, it feels good to get off this old nasty flesh for a little bit. Even though Jesus didn't sin. That's not the theological thing I want to talk about. But Jesus could have said, you know, I'm going back home. Forget this. But if Jesus went up, then Moses and Elijah would have had to stay down. Why? Because then Jesus wouldn't have died for our sins and no one would have been able to have forgiveness of sins. It was of God's graciousness that he decided to robe himself back in flesh and come down back off the mountain, knowing that he was going to die for our sins and allow us to have forgiveness of sins. Again, that's a theological thing you could mess your mind about, but wanted to give it to you just for that idea that he could have went up and he would have been fine because he was still God. But he chose to roll back in flesh, go back down the mountain, knowing he was headed to the cross to die for your sins and for mine. As we continue with this, not only do we see the pledge, then we see the place, we also see the plan. What is the plan? That Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested, put in a false trial. He's going to go, be sentenced to death, be put on the cross, die on the cross, be rose again the third day. That's the plan. But we also see a person, the person. Now, after watching this event, don't you think you would have some things rolling in your mind? You probably was not thinking about what was on Netflix tomorrow. You're probably not thinking about what's for supper. This probably has your undivided attention to go through an event like this. So notice with me as we pick it up in verse number 8. And suddenly when they had looked around about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. So in a flash, just like that, Elijah's gone, Moses is gone, and Jesus is back in his robe. He's robed back in flesh. And he says, okay, boys, let's go. Which is, okay. Again, their mind, they're thinking about it. Now, wouldn't you want to go tell someone? Wouldn't you want to go immediately and say, man, you wouldn't believe what I saw. But who would believe you? Who would believe this tall tale? Hey, man, we went up to heaven, or up to uh, the mountain. And we were at mountain, Jesus took off his robe. He took off his flesh. He was turned inside out. And then, guess what? You'll never, we talked to Moses. Moses who? Is that Moses down the street? No! Old Moses! Old Testament Moses! It was him! Yeah. Who'd believe you? Who are you going to tell? Who's not going to put you in a loony bin? Notice what Jesus gives them in advice as the three are talking among themselves or probably in a stunned state. Notice verse 9. And as they came down the mountain, he, Jesus, charged them that they should tell no man what they've seen until the Son of Man was risen from the dead. Boys, it'd probably be best if you didn't tell anybody what just happened. Until I be risen from the grave and then they'll believe you. Until I'm risen. Now, when he starts talking about he's risen from the dead... He's been saying that a lot lately. So he tells them to keep them to themselves. Keep this to yourself. You saw this person. Jesus is now back. Don't tell anybody about this. But this is going to bring to our last part here the problems. The problems. 
So Jesus is going back. Boys don't say anything about this. Wait till I've been risen from the dead. So they start scratching their head and they talked about themselves. And you'll find this throughout the gospel record of Mark. I don't know if they think that Jesus is um, deaf or if they think that he's not paying attention. But as he's leading the way, they talk among themselves all the time as if he can't hear them. They'll have conversations like, when we get to heaven, I'm going to be better than you. Jesus is right there listening to them. Here they're talking about, what's this about being risen from the dead? He's right there. But they're talking among themselves. He can hear them. But they're like, what does this mean? He keeps saying this. It's got to be important, but what does it mean? What do you think it means? Jesus is going to die, and then he's going to come back from the dead. Brother, like, is this secret code? Does this mean something different? Is this something in the Greek that we don't understand? They're, they're talking among themselves. What does he keep saying this? And they're talking among themselves and they don't get it. So <laughs> verse number 10. And they kept the saying with themselves, questioning one another what the rising from the dead should mean. See, I wasn't making it up. That's what the Bible says. They're talking about and saying, what does that mean? Well, what do you think it means? But they're having a conversation about him. I mean, so... Jesus switched the subject. They're going, they were thinking about Christ, but then he says, keep this to yourself till they rise from the dead. Well, that's kind of important because they need to know when they could talk about it. But we've got to wait till he rises from the dead. When is that? Is that when he really has a bad night and he has the migraine and then wakes up the next day and he no longer looks like death? I mean, what does, it, what does this mean? And you know, you could probably imagine what kind of theories, I'm going to call them my seventh graders now, all right? The disciples are now seventh graders with the idea that they don't think well and they don't process. I don't know what that means. What do you think it means? Oh, and they come up with their theories and Jesus is listening to them the whole time. I almost want to go back to that phrase when he sighed deeply. He's walking down the mountain after this big event and they're trying to figure out what raised from the dead means. Okay, so they're walking down. Verse number 11. So the disciples finally get enough courage to ask Jesus about it, but they want to ask in a roundabout question. They don't want to sound stupid and say, Jesus, what do you mean by rise from the dead? They're, they don't want to sound stupid, so they don't ask that question. So they ask another question that they found in the Bible that maybe he could explain a little bit more if they have some context. Verse number 11. And they, the three disciples, asked him, saying, why say the scribes, so the Bible students, those that keep the Bible, the Old Testament um, scriptures, why say the scribes that Elias must come first? So they're trying to say, all right, we know that according to the Bible, that Elias is supposed to come first. We just saw Elias. So does that mean that Jesus is going to come now? Is this the way thing? We're, is this what we're waiting for? The scriptures said that Elijah is going to come? So they asked Jesus about this. How does this work? So verse number 12. And he, Jesus, answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things. How it is written. Notice that. How it is written. The son of man, of the son of man that he must suffer many things and be sought at not. So again, he's explaining, hey, it says that Elijah's coming. And then after that, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. When he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, put in a false trial. He's going to be put on the cross. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. That's, he's continuing to explain that. The Bible says that Elijah had to come first. But I say unto you, verse 13, that Elias is indeed come. And they have done unto him whatsoever they listed as it is written to him. Now, what's he speaking about? He's speaking about the prophecy that another Elias would come to make the way straight. And that would be John the Baptist. That's why at the very beginning of the gospel record of Mark, it says the beginning of the gospel and then it puts it to John the Baptist. He is the forerunner of Christ. That's what was predicted in the scriptures that Jesus would have a forerunner to prepare the way straight and that he would be known as the Elijah, the Elijah of the New Testament, John the Baptist. And he begins to try to explain to them that Elijah's already come and they've already done with him. What happened to John the Baptist? He was beheaded for preaching. He was killed by Herod. 
and he's already been done away with. And now Jesus, all that's left for him to do is to go down to Jerusalem, to be arrested, put on a false trial, be crucified, be killed, and then on the third day rose again. And so throughout this, there's a couple things that I want you to be mindful of that he, Jesus keeps relying on the scripture as it is written. The disciples talk about the scripture. Even when they're talking about, let's build three churches, one for Jesus, one for the law, and one for the prophets. That's the Old Testament. Let's build something here. Now, I want to apply something because Peter did remember this event. Would you remember this event? And he makes reference to this event later on. Notice, if you don't mind, to the book of 2 Peter. And let's see what Peter writes about this event about 30 years after the fact. The book of 2 Peter, towards the end of the Bible, if you open to the very back, you come to the book of Revelation, Jude, uh, 3 John, 2 John, <coughs> uh, 1 John, then you come to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter number 1. And let's see what Peter says about this event of the Mount Transfiguration. And that's a major event. It's an amazing event. Something powerful happened there. Notice as Peter begins to make reference of it in the book of 2 Peter chapter number 1. The book of 2 Peter chapter 1. And notice with me in verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here he goes, <coughs> we did not make these tales up. This isn't something that we made up, but we didn't come up with cunningly devised fables. But instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's going back and referring to it. I was there. I'm not giving second-hand information. I'm telling you, I saw with my own eyes, Jesus transfigured. How do you know that's what he's talking about? Notice the next verse. Verse number 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. He says, I was there. I was an eyewitness. I was there. I heard God's voice. I saw God transfigured out. I was with them in that holy mount. It was an amazing experience there. It was wonderful. And someone may listen to that and say, I want that type of experience. I want there. I, what would it be like to see Jesus transfigured? What would it be like to see Jesus in his glory? What would it be like to see Moses and Elijah talking with each other? Wouldn't that be amazing to see? But one thing is true is that you can experience that. Peter was there, but you weren't. You could hear about Peter tell you about it, but that doesn't work the same. It doesn't do you any good. You could hear the information. But as Peter's saying, we haven't made up these stories. We're eyewitnesses. He says, I was there. I saw this. But then he changes it and says, but guess what? Guess what? Even though that was an amazing experience, notice in verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well to take heed as a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. He says, as much of a great, a wonderful experience it was to go into that mountain and see it transfigured, you have something better. You have the word of God. You have a more sure word of prophecy. What does that mean? This means this is more reliable. Have you ever remembered something wrong? You say, I've always remembered things right. Oh yeah, ask your wife about it. And see if she remembers that incident different than you do. You know, there's something about experience is that that tale begins to change over time. You begin to remember things a little bit differently. Highlight different things. The fish gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The danger gets more. Your experience not only can you not share that experience 
except by words, they can't go through the same emotions, the same things that you went through. They could hear you tell about it, but it's not the same. But your recollection of those events can alter based off of mood, height, audience, those type of things. But we have something that is a more sure word. Better than going to the Mount of Transfiguration is the word of God. Better than you having an experience is to know what the Bible has to say. You know, we live in a world where people like experiences. They like their things that they could feel. But the Bible says don't base anything off of your feelings. We have a more sure word of prophecy. That if you had the choice of going to the Mount of Transfiguration for yourself or having a copy of the Bible for yourself, Peter says you'd rather have the Bible. This is better than any experience. Now, the reason why this is such a big deal, again, because our culture likes experiences. I cannot tell you how many deacons I've run into that now deacons you expect to be saved and to be able to explain to someone. But I've run into some deacons who I say, how do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? Well, one night I had a dream. And in that dream, a voice said everything was going to be all right. And I know I'm going to heaven because I had that dream. And they believe that. Well, let me tell you, better than some dream is to be able to say, I know I'm going to heaven because of what the Bible has to say. I have a more sure word of prophecy. You know, that dream could have been just pepperoni pizza. We have something more reliable than experience. There are some people who look for the experiences. I look for my feelings. I feel saved. How do you know that you're going to heaven? Because I feel like it. What happens when you wake up with a migraine? You still feel like you're going to heaven? It's not based off of feelings. Well, I feel like I'm close to God. How do you know? Because I feel it. Got anything else with that? I'm not being mean, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. It is better to say, I know I'm right with God because the Bible says so. I've met some of our charismatic friends who they want to talk about, I can speak in tongues. I can speak in the languages of angels. Well, praise the Lord. You know what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where it gives the rules about how to speak in tongues? Do you follow those things? I don't care what the Bible says. I know it's true because I did it. That's an exact quote. But we say, and what happens is they put their experiences to the level of Scripture. But Peter says, I was there with Jesus. I saw him transfigured. I saw Moses. I saw Elijah. But I want to tell you that you have something better than that experience. You have the word of God. And that you need to base what you uh, everything you have off the word of God. You know why some people like music? Because I like it. Well, what does the Bible say about it? Because I like it. Well, what does the Bible have to say? I don't care. I like it. Okay? We have a more sure word of prophecy. Why do you go to such and such church? Because it makes me feel good. I am accepted. Praise the Lord. What does the Bible have to say? Well, I just know it makes me feel good. Okay? I know it's God's will for me to do this. Praise the Lord. How do you know that? Because I feel it's the right direction. Okay? What does the Bible have to say? I just know it's the right direction. Okay. Sometimes they'll pull out this one. I prayed on it and I have peace. You could work up a false peace on anything. What does the Bible have to say about this? We should be people of the Bible. This is the surety. This is where we don't get in trouble. This is where we don't fall off the cliff. This is where we're not walking or building a house of sticks. 
That we should base everything we do. This is what the Bible says. Why do I go to the church? Let me show you from the Bible. Why do you do the Lord's Supper this way? Let me show you from the Bible. Why do you do soul winning like you do? Let me show you from the Bible. Why do you listen to this music? Let me show you from the Bible. That everything we do should be based off of the word of God. Everything we do in our life. Why do we do this? Because this is what the Bible says. We have a more sure word of prophecy. And we need to base things off of the Bible, not how we feel, not what we experience. Now, I'm not downplaying experiences, but let me tell you, Satan loves to give experiences. And if he could distract someone by an experience and get them away from the Bible, he's doing what he should do. That's what his goal is. We have a more sure Word of prophecy. And even the Bible is not based off of how we feel. How do we know that? Well, Peter goes on in verse number 20. Knowing this first. So he says, hey, you have a more sure word of prophecy. Let me tell you about this. Verse number 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That means that God only meant one thing by it. It doesn't mean that the Bible means something to you and then means something different to me. There's not many interpretations. There is one interpretation. In order to get the correct interpretation, there's a biblical way to find it out. But we're trying to find out what did God mean by it, not what do I think that it means. Why? Because we have a more sure word of prophecy. Even the prophecy is not up for interpretation. The scriptures are not up to interpretation. It's up to what God said and that settles it. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Meaning some guy didn't say, you know, I think I'm going to write some Bible today. But instead, holy men of God, so people that were surrendered of God, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. God directed them. So again, Peter, as he's giving a summary, 30 years after the fact, as he's still thinking about the Mount of Transfiguration, and it's something that you'll never forget if you experienced it. He goes to the other Christians, another generation removed, and he says, I want to tell you, you may not have had the privilege to walk in with Jesus, but you have something better than an experience. You have a more sure word of prophecy. You know, in other parts of the scriptures, it said the Old Testament saints would have given up anything to have what we have today, the completed word of God. This is something special. This is something better. This is something wonderful. Which brings me to the question, is it wonderful, important, precious to you? Do you get up in the morning and say, the most important thing I could do today is to be in my Bible? Or is it something, I'll get to it if I want to. You have a more sure word of prophecy. This is better than anything you'll experience all day. Is to be in your Bible. You say, are you sure? That's what the Bible says. It's not my opinion. You have a more sure word of prophecy. This should be the most important thing. You should be running to it. I can't wait to get my Bible. You need to have a need. I need to get in my Bible. Because this is the more sure. This is the stable thing I'm going to face all day. You may go through and your feelings mess with you. And you can't trust your heart. It is a liar. It is deceptive. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? But this is a more sure word of prophecy. You say, I can't wait. I've been looking for this all day. I get to experience this. Let me tell you, better than that experience, and thank you, praise the Lord, you get to experience whatever it is, the most important thing you'll do that day is to be in your Bible. You have a more sure word of prophecy. This is going to be the most real thing you participate in all day. Now, I say it like that, because I want to put an emphasis to get you to read your Bible differently. This is a more sure word of prophecy. It is more sure than your feelings. It is more stable than your experiences. It is more truthful than anything you'll hear on the news. 
the more sure word of prophecy. And so whereas we may hear those great events or you may read these great stories and hear about these amazing tales, you have something better than all of that. You have the Bible written in your language with a copy for yourself that you can read it and understand it and obey it and follow it. And you'll be on better ground than anything else you will do or experience all day. Stand in the word. Be in the word. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Let's go to God together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you, we see that you've placed an emphasis here that the Bible is the most important thing we can participate in all day. And Lord, I know that it takes time for us to get the mindset of it, for us to actually believe that. But once we do, everything changes. Help us to be people of the book. Now, in order to be people of the book, we have to know the book. We have to be able to apply the book, explain the book, to be able to teach the book. There's something about it that you can't stand on promises if you don't know what they are. We need to be able to explain everything we believe and everything we do based off of God's word. To have a biblically defensible position for everything we do. Lord, I'm asking that you would just help us to be more determined to be people of the book. Maybe you're just at a place where you're not reading your Bible much. Maybe you're just getting one chapter a day, if that. Let me tell you, that's not enough. You're not reading your Bible. You're just patting yourself on the back, just a checklist. Your Bible's not important to you. Charles Spurgeon said this, that if you don't love the Bible, you won't love the God who gave you the Bible. Do you love the Word? Do you stand on God's word? Can you be able to defend what you do based off of God's precious word? We need to be people of the book. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three oh eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three oh eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.